Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the next episode of Streamtime Sports. My name is Chris Stone, the community lead here at Sports for Media, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Beecham. Now, Nick, we left last episode talking about what we were thankful for, um, and you talked about being thankful for the Jamaican weather. Well, I just got back from taking my dog for a walk, you know, and I will let you know right now, the, I'm, I'm pretty jealous of that weather that you're talking about, Nick. I know it's very British to talk about the weather, but we are, it's ugly, it, it's terrible, um, and it certainly makes me wish I was chilling on a beach somewhere. <laughs> I had a pretty good uh, beach weekend this weekend I was at a place called Frenchman's Cove lovely spot where you have a nice little cove with a beach uh, some nice nice small waves that my kids can play in and then off of it goes it connects a stream which runs up the, the mountain and there's a lagoon that comes off in between there and the, the start of the river so it's about the most idyllic place I've ever been to uh, so a little bit of sympathy throwing your way. Although that being said, the, the the negatives about living in a climate like this, which is very tropical, is you get with the with the great weather, you also get huge storms. And um, when we had a storm a few weeks ago, it created so many potholes. That one pothole I saw was the width. No, more than one was actually the width of my car. So if I didn't see it coming before I drove in it, I would have ended up being stuck in a ditch in the middle of the road, which is quite commonplace here. So you've got to take the good with the bad. Uh, I'll take many days of, of nice weather to a few potholes here and there. But part of the driving experience here is basically like, I don't know what you call what sort of game it would be like. Uh, oh, what was the game where you basically play with your phone? You like swipe left and right when something's coming at you, like coins. It's almost like a Sonic thing, mm, sort of. I, but. I know what you're talking about. I just can't remember what the oh, name is. Anyone remembers the name be, of the uh, game? Super easy. Yeah, like, was, it, was, was there a game right. like Maze Runner or something like that? Something like something that. Runner, yeah, something. I'll, something I'll like remember that. It. It's basically like that with with a car here because there's a, there's gonna be pop potholes everywhere. You just got to dodge as well as people and cars. So uh, anyway, that's that's another anecdote from uh, from over here. Well, you know what, Nick? I will say, despite being in Jamaica, I do know last week there was somewhere else you would have rather been than off in your um, Caribbean island. <laughs> Massive well, FOMO you know, over Nick, here, I have to say. Just a little bit. You know, I could see the occasional text messages to um, Yin and George and Miles just asking for um, updates. And I will say, Jam Nick, there was a lot of momentum building um, for Sports Pro Jamaica. I, I hope you take it the right way that lots of people are asking where you're at, wishing they were able to see you. Um, and they were all saying sports road Jamaica 2024 needs to happen. <laughs> well, I'll, I'm going to start doing some research in the next couple of weeks around Christmas at the, the, the big five-star resorts and see if I can find somewhere that's uh, suitable to host a high level conference. So uh, never say never, but uh, yeah, I've had a few comments saying, uh, when, when can we come out and visit or run, run an event out there? So we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I won't write it off yet, but uh, I've got to do some inspections first on, the, on the, the quality facilities before we can make a call. Yeah, I mean, if not, we can just all hang out at the beach. There's maybe a golf course <laughs> around or something. I'm, I'm sure we'll find something to entertain ourselves with. Yeah, there's one golf course in, in Kingston, which apparently Usain Bolt lives on the 13th hole. So you can see his place from there. Um, I drove past it the other day and... The road that runs alongside that golf course is right in my firing line. So I'm a bit worried about going out and playing there and shedding, <laughs> shooting some balls onto the wrong, or on, across the uh, fence line and putting myself, at, uh, putting other people at danger, let alone myself. So uh, I'm going to be out there soon to give it a run and see what it's like. But uh, I might try and wave to you saying Bolt uh, when I can, if, he, if he's around next time around. So if you can spot him, man's too fast to be seen. <laughs> So, Nick, we will talk a little bit about Madrid in this wrap-up episode. You know, for us, it's a real tentpole moment here at Sports Pro, and I think particularly looking at the Streamtime Sports Podcast, you know, it's sort of all that stuff coming to life. And, you know, to be honest, Nick, you might have actually been able to tune into more of the content than I did from afar. I know we were doing some, from a production standpoint, recording things, and you might have been able to actually tune into more sessions than I did, um, just hosting some different things that were invite-only behind the scenes. Um but, you know, Nick, it was the same thing I would say. And I know you talk about Madrid being a special event just because of the community. And I think that sense came up. And interestingly, you know, people like Carson Ruppel over at DFL and Andres Hayden, formerly at Dime Media, um, spoke to our friends at Ampere Analysis, you know, Manal, who's been part of the podcast and lots of uh, editorial work and just people. We kind of see at all of our events, Carlos, CDM, and you get the same feedback where, you know, you see a lot of familiar faces. And I know sometimes that's sort of, penciled down is not a great thing you're always trying to meet new people but the thing that came up across multiple people is we're seeing the same people but the challenges are changing every single year so it's almost kind of nice to see those people to say how are you guys responding to this because it's not something we were looking at 12 months ago it's something i'd really love to do is actually map out where we were 
at each year of that event in particular because it's been such a whirlwind six, seven years in this sort of OTT uh, era. I mean, now the event's obviously evolved and expanded out of OTT explicitly to be OTT plus plus in terms of all aspects of the sports media landscape. But uh, indeed, just it seems like everyone is on a different journey and we've all been learning a lot as we go along. You know, there's been conversations around what role will big tech play? And then it appeared like they weren't coming. And then all of a sudden, really this year, big tech was probably one of the hottest topics that I saw, uh, talked about a lot in terms of whether they're going to invest into sports rights, how they're going to aggregate uh, different plat- um, different broadcasters and networks together, how they're enabling monetization, what platforms like Apple are doing around uh, global rights. They're back, in, they're back at the heart of the conversation again after bit of a hibernation period i suppose so yeah just i think generally just the, the whole journey the entire industry has been going on as well as the sports properties themselves on tackling this new era of um, of streaming this new era of uh, social media and content creation and going direct to consumer it feels like we have hit another point another milestone where the education and the thinking's different it's now much more about not trying to as much as about learning as about how do we get moving how do we get action how do we turn that into revenue whereas before there was probably more questions about what do we do what do we do we don't really know how to approach this i think even last year the conversation was more actually we can't do it ourselves we have to rely on other partners now i think that's tipped back a little bit more centrally between there's some value working with partners and there's some value doing it ourselves well the interesting thing my first time here four years ago just you know talking about where we're the whole talk was, is Facebook going to be the next, you know, big broadcaster? Is Twitter going to be the next big broadcaster? Like that was sort of the conversation. Um, was it, was it Rob Shaw was the first episode of stream time that ever happened mm-hmm. way back before I was even a part of it. And like, that's sort of just how far we've come. Like in my time, you know, that was a conversation, you know, going on there, you know, social media going to be the home of these things. And I remember, I think the very first content session we had, there was Craig Hepburn from UEFA. Um, oh, I can't remember her name from uh, DAZN. She was the chief revenue officer at the time. I think she's now working in Dazone, Italy. If you can, we can remember her name, I'll try to remember by the time that we come back up. But uh, there was Sergio from uh, Movie Star Plus was the president oh, yeah. there. Um, and they were talking about, are we going to reach subscription fatigue? And that was four years ago. And I think, uh, in fact, we are probably reaching subscription fatigue because now we spend so much time talking about AVOD and social media platforms or using third-party content on social media platforms. It does seem like uh, an odd Odd to look back at four years ago how far we've come since my first Sports Pro Madrid event. Yeah, look, I think the big thing I'm seeing now is that there's always a conversation around um, business uh, monetization models and approaches to how to monetize content. And that just feels like there's now actual defined use cases that have been successful that people can now talk about uh, and that exist that people can can trial and test and they aren't uh, as difficult as perhaps we all thought they to they would be definitely there's an element of subscription fatigue i mean the consistency consistent uh, word you're hearing is that you know the subscription model is great for some but unless it's a bundled proposition you have to be thinking and advertising in other ways of monetizing you can't focus on a subscription first product if it's if it's if an unbundled proposition that's generally the theme that we're hearing right across the landscape and where the bundling part comes in is what's also really interesting is that with a sports property doing a lot of the work themselves? Is it working with a sports-specific network? Or is it the, at the top end with those big tech companies and big aggregator offerings bringing all those those worlds together? So I do think it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's so much more complex than what it used to be, which means everyone has to be constantly listening, learning, uh, and understanding what's going on and what's working and what's not. But there is no special special source, secret formula. Everyone has to be very pragmatic in understanding all of those opportunities and then coming up with the best uh, approach and not just thinking there is, well, hey, we like what they do. Let's just follow them. It just doesn't doesn't work like that. Yeah. Veronica DeQuattro was the DAZN executive that I couldn't remember. And it's because she's not DAZN anymore, but she was the third person on that panel. So I, I had to yeah, do She was CSO, I think, at the time. That's where I think you threw CSO and then CEO yeah. of Italy, I think. And she left uh, only a month or a couple of months ago, I think. Yeah, not too long ago. And the other thing I would say, Nick, that was a lot different this year compared to other years was the amount of teams and clubs. I think historically with that event, just given it being so broadcast heavy, you know, it was pr- primarily broadcasters and leagues who are looking to go D to C. But 
we saw far more actual football clubs there because we are talking about the media side of things and digital monetization, which I'll talk a little bit more about my experiences during one of our exec forums. But the amount of individual teams and clubs that are coming in now trying to figure this out, trying to figure out how we engage fans digitally is much different than what the event was like my first four years. There were a couple of teams that were doing some things in smaller leagues, but the amount of Premier League teams, um, the amount of from La Liga teams over from America was a much different um, set of rights holders that were there than what I saw from my first time coming out. Well, I think what's really interesting about that space is I think sometimes it's um, negated or neglected what is happening at the team level with their investment into content and content creation. But there is huge teams and resources being plugged into uh, these uh, teams and clubs and, and leagues to create content every single day across a whole host of platforms, uh, social media, YouTube, etc., as well as on their own owner-operated when they decide they want to take that approach. And then you add the layer of what sponsors are now demanding, which is way more content and way more storytelling than ever before. Uh, and then also these other areas around monetization, around what else can we offer to provide more value um, and get people spending and drive up ARPUs across the across their fan base. Um, it's really, it, it's never been, I think, a, I just think it's much more complex than ever in terms of even what a team is looking at to do uh, at this space and why they're doing it. Because I think more, more and more people are getting a little bit abreast of the vanity metrics are great. You know, it's great to go and tell sponsors and so forth. We've got X millions of views on any one post. But to get real fan engagement, to get actually fans being positive about what your club is doing uh, on or off the pitch, you can't just look at vanity metrics alone. A lot of people are trying to work out how to play that. And if you do create a positive, a true, truly positive sentiment with the core of your audience, then that can make it much easier to monetize in, in down the line if you're trying to make a, a business case for it. But if you're just trying to ram, buy more shirts, buy more this, buy more tickets, et cetera, to an audience that 95% aren't really relevant or appropriate for, then it's a lot of wasted effort and energy. I think that's why teams are taking a lot more seriously now. So interestingly, one of the exact forms that we ran, and this is something we do at all of our events, invite only, um, you know, proper buy side. Uh, one of them was specifically on fan engagement. You just touched on a point there that was really interesting, Nick. There's a few points that came up from that exact forum. And just for people out there, you know, it's, it is closed door. I'm not supposed to talk about, you know, specifics of what went on. But, you know, if you told me list off the... If I said make a list of the 21st sports properties you could think of in the world of football, whether that be leagues or individual football clubs, I'd say probably 50% of that list of 20 was in that room sort of thing. And they're all very senior people. One of the things that came up, we do an activity where it's, you know, remove any pre-existing, you know, broadcast deals you have remove any existing legacy tech stacks you have and build a platform how you'd want to build it from scratch, which is a fun exercise because most of these guys are tied into some other deal where they can't just do it or there's cash restrictions. And the thing that came up in one of this discussions or one of the groups of tables was around loyalty, um, which I think is what you were kind of touching on a little bit there about fans are over monetized already to begin with. And, you know, when they were talking about building their perfect platform for fan engagement, the, the number one thing he said was, you know, how do we build something that people are going to feel loyalty towards? Because that, you know, they're tired of being monetized in every other way. How can you make it about fan loyalty, which was interesting because some of the other groups were talking about, you know, how do we add in gamification features? How do we do this? How do we do that? The other group never actually got very far and they just talked about building brand loyalty, um, which I thought was, um, you know, there's always room for people to have that high level conversation where some people took it very granular, but then some people talked about building that proper loyalty community, which was an interesting shift from what some of the other groups are talking about. Yeah, I, I think it's probably been not nickel, not neglected, but something that people have been not as focused on for a while now because the, that it's very difficult to measure loyalty or has been in the past. We, we now have more data points than ever and it is something that we can continue to work on across the, um, across the industry to get more and more insight into what people are. We talk about data all the time, right? So there must be some answers in there to prove what brand loyalty is all about and how it drives drives value. Uh, there are di lots of teams taking different purposes, but I think it's pretty consistent now that they are aware, but whether it's through the the battle scars of going through the NFT era, I suppose, where a lot of them found out there wasn't going to be this appetite that they were hoping for, that you have to take brand loyalty very seriously um, if you want to really get your fans engaged. Uh, and I, I even hate using the word engaged, but 
fans loyal, fans positive, you know, fans feeling like if you publish something, they want to write something supportive and not write something negative. Now, it's hard in the social media era, but I do think there's, there's a layer of that. If they really think you're trying to do best for them, that can turn into real value. I think the, the whole, that your point about the over monetization bit, I mean, there's, there's an argument that goes against that, right? Because like 99% of all fans, if you think from a social media era, aren't actually spending money with the club directly. Uh, but the problem is they're spending in other ways. Normally, it's through subscriptions of broadcast product. But generally, they, they, they aren't getting that direct sort of currency exchange happening with, with the fan. But because there is, there's a stigma there, because all the money that's talked about in the industry, everything they do does feel like it's taking more, more, more when they're already just printing checks, basically. So uh, it's, it's an important time for those, those sports teams to, to continue to push on how can they build more of a relationship with fans. I haven't seen anyone who's blown me away on their approach, but I think there was a few interesting um, stories and, and studies brought up at the event, which I'm hoping to dig into uh, on the on-demand uh, uh, tab on the, uh, the event app uh, next week because I think I need to spend a bit of time to consume those sessions. Well, yeah, and I just to stick on this particular exact form because it, it is interesting. You talk about those 99% of fans. They also talked about those 99% of fans, but in a different direction, which is, you know, if you are... Barcelona, Real Madrid, Arsenal, Man United, 99% of your fan base is never actually going to visit your stadium, um, you know, because they're, they're such global fan groups. And that's one of the things they talked about was one of their current biggest headaches is localization. And then how do you monetize based off of that localization? Because they understand the global draw that they have. But at the moment, they really do struggle, you know, monetizing the overwhelming majority of their audience. Yes, they'll sell some jerseys, but you know, the fans that they're really probably driving the most money off of are the ones that are coming to the stadiums, you know, week in, week out. You know, the majority of their fan bases, as you say, like they're not making any money off of them. And that's something that they're they're all trying to figure out from a localization perspective, which opened up some conversations around AI, you know, how do you use AI to to transcribe or to use different language features to make it more relevant. And, you know, that was what they were all talking about as a major headache for a lot of these sports trying to go international to figure out how to, to tie into some of those fan groups that they do have. Well, it comes down to also the conversations we, we hear a lot about whether they should go, uh, whether a sports club or team should go to go down the direct to consumer route or not, whether it's, it's financially worth it, whether it's um, worth it from a fan engagement perspective, and a great question I hear a lot is, and I often wonder as well, like, do you really need, when you're talking to a consumer audience, do you really need first-party data? Uh, and I think there are some cases for why, but do you, what about all the data points you do get through all those social media platforms that tell you the demographics, where they're located, what they're interested in? You can get a lot of the information through YouTube and some of those social media platforms. So what is so valuable about that first party data that you can turn into something of real substance? Because um, you can get a lot of information around consumer habits, habits just anonymized through some of those, those platforms themselves. So I, I think there's, there's a, uh, still plenty of work to be done. I think they're all trying to work it, work it out. I think they're probably more buoyant, I think more positive than it used to be about there's a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel for some of this. But it's all marginal gains. It's not like there's no silver bullet here for, for any of them, that's for sure. So moving on to the content itself, you know, we started off the the event with two sessions that kind of aligned to content that you and I have been speaking a bit about. So it was good to hear from them directly instead of just you and I trying to read the tea leaves. Um, you know, we had the La Liga and League One join us, um, Javier Tabas, you know, ex president but likely soon to be re-elected president i imagine is the way that's going to go um and then the ceo of league one ben morell kind of talking about you know sort of how they're seeing things you know we've talked about some of the struggles we we've seen for some of the european football leagues trying to negotiate their domestic rights was there anything that came out of those conversations that you think were surprising or insightful uh, well, I thought in the Ben Morel conversation, what was quite clear is that he spoke very humbly about their position. Sometimes you get these these big big leagues that have a really strong market position in certain places. He was very honest and open about where they sit within the European mix. You know, they're they're in the top five, but they're at the bottom of that five, particularly from a commercialization standpoint. They have those USPs they're trying to lean into about sort of homegrown talent and and whatnot, but they have a lot of opportunity in driving more. Uh, value out of their media rights both domestically and indeed internationally and you think you know one of the things that's it sounds straightforward right but one of the things that made the premier league so successful was it being an english english-based um league initially which definitely helped 
uh, get it into new markets pretty comfortably. Well, well French is, is spoken in so many different countries where there's next to no value being generated from those markets for a, a league that has a lot of internationals coming from French-speaking nations. So there's a lot of opportunity he talked about there, but they haven't unlocked it. And they've had to do a lot of work to sort of reshape how they're looking to approach things. They've even remodeled how Champions League funding is being uh, uh, distributed to um, some of the, 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 top, the top teams, basically. So the rich teams get a bit richer uh, is, the, is the crux of it, which is not how he said it, but I'm paraphrasing. But the view is that they want to hopefully be more competitive at a European level. So there's more interest uh, ultimately in the European, um, from a European international level in the league itself. But you know, he even talked about the fact they've, they've been really passive on their direct-to-consumer approach and what they've been doing themselves. And now they're perhaps seeing some of the, the, the scars from that now that they're, they're now having to build, build from basically scratch on all their approaching on first-party data and direct-to-consumer, et cetera, et cetera, which they haven't been able to do. So that was just interesting to see how, how clearly he talked about, about those, those challenges and indeed, um, I suppose, how... Uh, they're looking to, to that where they are at with their current tender process, and it doesn't sound like anything's concrete. They're just trying to work with all, talk to all their broadcast partners about who wants what, and then try and do the best deal they can given the situation. In many ways, very similar to what Syria um, situation was, which I think he even referenced. So, I mean, it, it wasn't a rosy picture. It wasn't like don't worry about what's happened. You know, we're all good. It was very pragmatic, very, very frank from Ben that they have got a lot of work to do. He did also point out that I think that on the He's been from coming from rugby and rugby was going through a lot of governance challenges and changes when he was in rugby. And he says a lot of that's been sorted out, sorted out since, when, since he's joined LFP because of the, I think probably because of the CVC relationship where they've invested into the media business. So he's much more, it's sort of a, a bit of an acceleration from what he went through last time. And now he's about going forth, coming up with a strategy and then executing. Yeah, and I do think that is going to be a bit complicated because he was even talking about different things with streaming platforms like Amazon, but also looking at going to a free-to-air. And it does seem like the idea of having sort of an exclusive broadcaster to make it nice, tight, and clean is not going to be the case. And it is going to be a bit of a sort of a very mixed bag approach. But, you know, I'd be curious, you know, long-term how that does impact fandom. You know, we've talked about discoverability being such an issue that, you know, is it going to be a problem? I I don't know, but uh, it definitely... They've got work to do. They sure do. Uh, I mean, it's such a complex situation if you think about what PSG has done and what they've invested in. PSG's ownership is connected with BN Sport, who's the biggest investor uh, in um, international rights for for LFP. Yet they have one of the lowest returns on international rights out of all the, the leagues. It's a very complex uh, situation. And all those investments that PSG made on huge global stars – has, doesn't bear any long-term fruit. It, the, the audience has come and go, right? They're, they're not, I'm not saying they're fickle, but they they follow the athletes. So now most of those top stars have left. You think about Messi, you think about Neymar, Mbappe is probably going to go in the next season. Though, and they might lose some of those audiences um, with those people as well. So how do they curb that when um, they have been so athlete-centric um, in their major investments, particularly from PSG's angle, which is obviously the, the top club there. So uh, an interesting situation, certainly not an easy one for, for Ben and his team to be navigating, that's for sure. And it, just anecdotally, he did say that he's talking almost every day with CVC and if CVC are pushing him to think longer term, not shorter term. Uh, so I think it's just an interesting soundbite there because we do talk a lot about CVC or we hear a lot about CVC and those investments they've made across a, a bunch of sports. Yeah, very interesting. Another conversation, another keynote speaker was Shai Segev, the CEO um, at DAZN. And it, it did seem like he touched on some of the points we've talked about, or it seems to be a common you know, statement from them around profitability, um, talking about whether or not they were going to try to enter in the, into the UK. Um, and, you know, they sort of talked about only if the price is right. I think I even heard mention uh, that they you know, kind of circled maybe League One in France is uh, the right opportunity for the right price where um, opportunity meets chance and meets the right uh, financial situation. So there are quite a few things that, you know, Shai talked about. Is there anything in particular that stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, he was very clear cut that he expects, fully expects them to own the Premier League, a set of Premier League media rights in the future, just whether or not it's this time around. I mean, his, his answer was fairly standard, standard you know, they won't pay whatever they whatever the price tag is, but they would be keen to have some of those rights. Uh, I, I, from what I'm hearing, that the, the UK market isn't as buoyant as what probably the Premier League was expecting. So I think they have a very good chance to secure some of those rights. 
uh, it just depends on what Sky and uh, the incumbents are, are willing to, to do. Um, I mean, he talked a little bit about betting, about the the complementary role that's playing. I mean, that's not that's nothing, nothing surprising there. But he's obviously got a betting background, given his previous career, uh, previous uh, role. I think it was at Entain, if I remember correctly. So, um, so interesting to hear see him talk about that. And we also had another session where um, I think we did have them talk about the women's sports investment as well. And I'm not sure that was I can't remember if that was raised in that in that session with Shy, but they've clearly made a lot of moves strategically around women's sports and women's football in particular. Uh, and that needs to start paying off uh, as well. So um, they've obviously made a big decision to shift the monetization model from subscription to advertising for or free to, free to access for the UEFA Women's Champions League. So that's going to be something that we're all going to be watching. Uh, that's for sure. Well, I think he also said something around uh, the the goal, the aim, the north star that they're they're following is within ten years to have a globe or globally a billion users. Um, that's quite a quite a lofty number and goal. But hey, uh, you know what was it that we got from our friend Timo Lume in his Hall of Fame interview? The the bag meeting they had at Nike, big audacious goal. Um, you know, I, I think there's nothing wrong with saying a big audacious goal like that. It's always just the devil's in the detail. What's a billion actually? Is it a billion views, billion billion monthly users, billion annual users, billion all time? Uh, they all mean very different things. But nice to have a big, big fat number to work towards as long as you don't put a deadline and timeline to it. Yeah, well, someone I spoke to uh, an association with the zone behind the scenes, and we will repurpose this. So you'll get a chance to hear my full brief interview. I spoke to Matthew Primack, who's the SVP of International Business Development at Fanatics. So obviously, e-commerce, when we're talking about the D2C world and how that is all moving, that sort of is a massive opportunity. Um, and he talked about sort of where Fanatics fits within this. And, you know, he sort of described it as like, hey, rights holders, teams, leagues, and even broadcasters they are not um, commerce platforms. This is not what they're built for. It's not what the expertise they have. They don't build the platforms for it. They don't have the distribution, the logistics for it. Um, and just where it fits in, you know, he mentioned the Alejandro uh, Garanacho goal. You may have seen that, Nick, the bicycle kick of the Man U player um, the week before. Um, and he talked about how jersey sales increased by, I think he said, 600% within, you know, the half hour of him making that goal. And he was talking about, you know, for these sports platforms, that's the kind of thing that you'd want to be able to tap into immediately and directly. Um, and he also gave a, an anecdote, which I won't try to repeat the stats off the top of my head, but he talked about when LeBron James last year hit the all-time NBA scoring record, the amount of jerseys that they sold within that window. And it's just a really interesting conversation about how they are looking to, to globally expand and how they're looking to get more into sports, particularly on the broadcast side, and really why they're they really are the key partners um, for anybody in that space. And it was a really interesting interview. Some really great statistics that I can't remember off the top of my head, but like we're talking very, very like big numbers in terms of the things they were seeing, just being able to be live in person, not leave the platform with which you're consuming the sports, but still be able to go out and purchase that jersey of whatever amazing thing just happened. It still feels that we're on this journey with e-commerce, right? And and even betting, which are the two areas the fanatics are focused on, is how that integrates into the the viewing and and sports experience. And they are the power. They are the powerhouse behind a lot of major sports properties. Um, and that consumer relationship, the active, it's there. They are. I don't know what they. I think I remember the the term they're using. They are effective, like the Amazon of sports, effectively, right? So they're trying to be. Uh, something to everyone uh, in this instance and they're doing a really good job of it they still only feel like they scratched the surface on that i'm not quite sure what the issue what challenges they've had in going to some of the other markets they haven't broken europe in the same way that they have the us i think part of the us thing was they were able to do deals at a very at a centralized level because of the nfl nba and so forth those those organizations do them at, at the top end whereas in, in Europe, you typically have to do those types of deals at a club-by-club basis, which changes the the dynamic of, of that approach, makes it much more difficult. And that's what I think also anecdotally what a lot of startups and tech companies don't realize when they come from the US. They don't realize you've got to do a deal with every single team and club in almost every instance when you're selling uh, a service or a tech uh, offering. Um, but Fanatics, I think, are still someone to follow. They've made all sorts of bets. They've got all sorts of money backed in and uh, thrown into them from all sorts of investors all over the planet. Um, I still feel like they've got a lot more to bring to the table in the coming years. It's kind of like, feels like they're setting themselves up for a big run at sports, um, international, international sports outside of the U S. Um, so I'm excited to see where they take it. That's for sure. Well, from the monetization side, you know, so we had a, a, an executive forum on fan engagement. We also had one on monetization and, you know, we talked about the things you'd all expect, whether that is, 
you know, owned and operated platforms, whether you're monetizing content on third party platforms, uh, looking into membership programs, uh, you know, and one of the rights holders, very prominent individual at a very big football club, literally stopped the, the whole room and just asked the question, does anyone here actually feel comfortable that they've succeeded in monetizing any sort of digital asset? And the room is very quiet. There are all people in that room that have launched OTT platforms. Some of them have membership programs. Yes, they're making some money on it. But in terms of, you know, really feeling confident about it, not really. And it's interesting because I think sometimes, you know, you hear at the top of every episode, my name is Chris, I'm the community at Sports Pro Media. It's sometimes uh, slightly ambiguous what that means. But one of the things I do, Nick, is I have co- lots of conversations with people trying to figure out what's in the community. And the number one thing I'm hearing from football clubs in particular, especially those that have been recently by, purchased by Americans, is find a way to monetize digital assets, um, which, you know, sounds great. But you know, no one's really quite doing it. I think the only answer anybody gave wasn't actually anyone in the room. They talked about they were really big fans of what Disney was doing in terms of the way Disney's sort of building its membership program. It's got the streaming platform. It's got what you can do on site. Um, I thought it was a bit interesting, but no one else really wanted to offer anything about being overly uh, confident in what they've produced so far in terms of having a sustainable digital monetization model. Well, one of the things I think we have talked about for um, is that difficulty about the, if you build it, will they come? And the reality is because that relationship like we talked about earlier isn't so positive and so strong, Disney had that, right? Disney's IP, brand loyalty, brand equity is so powerful that they launch a product and proposition built around some amazing IP that everyone loves People are going to come flocking to it. Your kid sees that uh, that that brand of you know Frozen or something on there. I want to watch that. Where do you watch it? Well, there's only one place. You're going to go there, and it's not too difficult to point people to that product. But sports, you know, is trying to change the entire way consumers engage um, with uh, with sports as a whole. They're trying to drive revenue from people that haven't historically ever had to pay transactionally direct to any of these in these clubs and teams uh, and then you just think well if you build this we're going to get so much support it's obviously fallen on deaf ears in pretty much every instance hence why we know a bunch of clubs that have actually decided not to launch um, their own uh, direct-to-consumer like product because they've seen a lot of the war wounds from a lot of people who have tried and, and failed or or tried and not just not hit the results that they we're hoping to hit. You know, you can get the best consultants in the world to tell you what it could look like, and it could look, look like a hockey stick growth once you launch it. But the reality is, you've got to be an incredible marketer. You've got to have incredible people in your business to constantly, once a platform's built, to make sure everyone's across it and understands the benefits, um, and can change perce- public perception if their perception is that you're just trying to get more money out of them. Have to add real value, and most of those product digital products we've seen just haven't had enough value. In in, in 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 frank terms. So one session that's you know non traditional and you know monetizing in their own different way. I'll ask you about is uh, the Kings League and the Queens League. You know perhaps maybe just give people a bit of a rundown because I think you actually like I said it's not a session I got to enjoy and I wish I could have because our good friend Jeff Nathanson um, was moderating the session. But maybe just give some an idea to some people that maybe aren't even familiar what that is and just sort of what you took away from their CEO and some of the comments he made. Right, so I haven't prepared this, so I might get the the description a bit <laughs> wrong. Um, but the Kings League is like a seven-a-side football competition that was founded by a company called Cosmos, uh, which is Jared PK Gerard PK's sporting organisation. For those that don't know, Cosmos also holds the rights to the Davis Cup, which is uh, the tennis competition, uh, and they have a bunch of other investments and things that they do as well. The Kings League blew up because it's mainly. Uh, if I understand correctly, mainly the clubs and teams are built on franchises or teams that are owned or powered by football personalities and internet streamers. So it's not a traditional football model in that sense. It's built on the new age of influencers uh, and it's just done incredibly well in getting huge, huge audiences uh, across all platforms and channels that they publish. Now, they broadcast free-to-air on YouTube. They broadcast through those respective influencers' own channels and that allows them to just get huge audiences. I think uh, they're the thing that they wear as a, a sort of a feather in the cap was they ran a, they had a game or competition at Camp Camp New, the FC Barcelona's home, and filled the stadium completely for for that match. 
So they are, but they, they, they say, if I remember correctly, I should check my notes, but one of the things they talk about is that, you know, the monetization model isn't around uh, media rights. There are sponsorship deals that are pretty central to their core revenue streams. Um, they also get, I believe, some money through maybe some merchandising e-commerce, but most of it's done through free-to-air. So they broadcast through YouTube as a primary channel. YouTube was also on that panel to talk about how successful it's been and the numbers were pretty insane um and what's interesting also is they're generating more revenue through youtube from their live stream product through through traditional content so they've they've themselves proven that you can build and they've been profitable pretty much from day one so they've proven and this is with investments to be clear around influencers investments in doing deals with influencers and they have paid players playing in those teams so it's not like it's a it's just it's not just a charity match it's treated very seriously but with these influencers sort of owning uh, a big responsibility in that mix and what they've just proven is that you can build a really successful model around advertising through platforms like youtube they use all sorts of uh, various um, uh, advertising uh, through the live broadcast experience that youtube's allowing and enabling and they rely heavily on sponsored sponsorship deals digitally to, to drive monetization. But there is no focus at all on broadcast rights. And there's no plan to, because why would they kill an audience that is super engaged and supporting them endlessly? And that's their basic message. And it's a super young audience, right? Obviously, it's a super young audience. So everyone, I mean, that is really the model that I think everyone is reluctant to go down, but is absolutely the model that is makes the most sense. Get as many eyeballs as possible and monetize it other ways. But because sports stuck with that subscription first or that um, pay TV funded model, it's so difficult to rip the bandaid off of that and then move to this this new world of using streaming platforms like YouTube. But they've proven that it can work and it can work very quickly if you have the right people involved. So Nick, before I move on to the OTT awards and kind of talk about some of the winners there, are there any other sessions you want to talk about? Are you happy to, to, to move on to the awards themselves? I'm going to try and remember if there was anything else off the top of my head. I don't think there was off the top of my head. So let's jump into the awards. So the awards, the the two biggest ones, I guess you could say from a organization perspective are the, the platforms of the year. Um, so from a network perspective, basically we split our platform of the year into two categories, one being rights holders really going to a D to C. And then we do one with networks uh, more along sort of those people that have multiple broadcast rights. Um, and the uh, winner for D to C uh, was Yes Network and what the work they're doing with Ease Live. And then the winner on the network side um, was Discovery Plus with Warner Brothers and their big massive merger. Um, they just beat out ESPN and DAZN, um, you know, so very close competition there. And then on the D to C side, um, if I can remember, the, the runners up were Media Pro. Um, for those that aren't familiar, they ran uh, a very impressive campaign on what they did with the World Cup in Spain uh, domestically. And then interestingly, it was a uh, uh, Super Sport in South Africa via Pixelot came in bronze with a very interesting uh, case study on building a D2C platform. But ultimately, you know, we're kind of looking at Yes Network and uh, Discovery Plus. You know, for me, I'll just be honest, anyone that's not familiar with Yes Network, um, I think a lot of the reason they stood out and won and, you know, Ease Live won multiple awards, so they're worth giving a shout out to, was really the user experience. And, you know, for me, being a big fantasy sports guy, the platform offers a lot of personalization in terms of being able to pick the stats that you want in live real time, as opposed to always being dependent on the broadcaster to, you know, randomly pop up the stats that you want. And, you know, they scored very highly, you know, Ease Live won multiple golds, multiple awards. So it's not a surprise that their product with Yes Network ended up winning. Um, but the Discovery Plus one was interesting. Maybe uh, ESPN will win if they can figure out how to, to do international, Nick. You know, last night I was trying to figure out the college football playoff ranking, who was going to get in, um, and it was blacked out. And I'm like, well... How can I watch? I just was a little upset, Nick. But uh, yeah, those are our two winners of the two biggest awards. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I mean, the Discovery one was an interesting one for me because they've been going through such a transition and uh, and launch. And so, I'll be honest. Sometimes I use their platform and I've I've struggled to use it. But what they have been had to go through is quite a significant change where they're bringing in um, all their sports content into a new platform. They're migrating audiences and. Um, and systems from one system to another. So it's clear that they, that was really something that, that resonated with um, some of the judges on, on that approach because there was some very good competition in that mix. Incidentally, while we have been on the pod, I just saw that TNT Sports have announced that they have uh, UK Premier League rides, 52 matches per season for the next four years. So they have announced 
their their Premier League rights that they've secured. So that gives them solidifies their place in the UK market for the next four years, which is not a huge surprise. But I have not seen the Premier League announcement, incidentally, come through um, on who, all the other packages. So it's interesting to see that that's come out before anything's come out from the Premier League. So anyway, I sorry diverted a little bit, but because it was you got me thinking about the fact that they they took the Discovery Plus title. Well, actually, they've also just got some secure some solid rights in the UK that will solidify their long term future. So kudos to them to keep keep things running. But we still have the juries out on the rest of them at, at this stage. Well, you know, maybe by Wednesday when this podcast comes out, we'll have uh, clarity from the Premier League on their side of the announcement as well. It was interesting from, you know, like I said, Ease Live won multiple awards. We had some some new categories, you know, reflective of sort of the, the sports world with best fast channel, best use of AI, and a best best broadcast distribution. So those are new categories um, that were were introduced and you know popular. But one I think I, I missed out on there was our executive of the year, which was Brian Rollat, the chief business and media mm-hmm. officer at the NFL. There was some interesting competition there as well, uh, but ultimately won just simply because of the sheer size of all the deals that the NFL has done. It probably does feel a little bit unfair um, when someone negotiates a hundred billion dollars worth of deals. But you know some of the things specific specifically that were in the, the application that the judges voted on that, that stood out were not just the focus on what they're doing free to air and linear broadcast. Everybody's aware of that. But the NFL, um, you know, has made some steps working with YouTube TV to launch the new Sunday NFL ticket through there. Um, their commitment to Amazon uh, Prime with what they're doing on Thursday night, as well as launching their own NFL Plus platform. Uh, you know, I don't think we need to spend too much time talking about why the NFL, you know, makes a lot of money. But, you know, there was an emphasis, you know, sort of in the application was put forward that it wasn't just what they were doing strictly on linear. You know, there has been a big push to do different things digitally. Yeah, I think they are really leading the the charge. I think what Blake uh, Stukin we've had on the podcast before, and he spoke at New York as well. And that team under Brian's uh, leadership have done in terms of really looking at the full end spectrum of of media activity and what they can do to drive value in audiences. You know, the Skydance deal has been recently expanded as well to produce more documentary and non-live content. The partnerships they have with all the major social and big tech platforms are as as good as they come with those relationships and with good reason. So I think the YouTube relationship they have where they've brought creators and allowing them to broadcast um, matches on you for the Sunday ticket is a great move and a great initiative. So they, they've, they're really pushing the NBA sort of innovation title, right, in terms of what they're doing on the media front. And a lot, a lot of kudos from, from me to them about what they're, what they're trying to do have been doing that it looks like it's been quite successful so it was almost great you know it's a great way to do business ultimately get your get your contracts done for the next 10 years then you can just focus on all the other stuff around the edges to amplify that maximize and they're clearly doing that very very well yeah and then sort of the other two big awards were the next two members of the sports pro hall of fame we have laurent eric lele who who spoke on day three kind of talking about what france television is doing uh particularly with the upcoming olympics coming in 2024 but he was recognized for you know his, his 30 plus years in the industry um you know launching different activations with Eurosport, uh, being part of france tv for a long time um and then on the other side as well we had manolo romero who is the the founding ceo um, of the Olympic Broadcasting Services and his daughter, Ursula Romero, was there as well as current CEO, uh, Yanni Exarchos. Both of them gave incredibly moving speeches, uh, multiple people in tears. And then, as you would not be surprised, you know, OBS put an incredible video together just outlining, you know, his career and the things that he's done. Um, you know, you think arguably for probably one of the most prominent and impactful sports that are out there. I know we always talk about the NFL and the NBA and things like that, but few things I think like the Olympics truly bring people together on a global scale. So both of them very well deserving of those awards. Um, but it's really great to have some of the, you know, Laurent with us to be able to speak about some of the highlights of his career, um, but also being able to have Yanni and Ursula come through and, you know, have a really great way, way to look back on the life and career of Manolo. I mean, they, they've they've given an incredible amount to the industry, and sometimes with a fast changing moving, uh, fast changing industry like we have in sports and sports media, sometimes people can be I don't want to say forgotten, but like they just kind of be lost in the mix of change and and, and new businesses, and new people coming to the mix. But um, Manolo's uh, impact on how broadcast production and the Olympics is being broadcast is is really second to none, and I think the, what the role of Laurent's play has been super impressive on bringing. Um, 
being one of the, the real staple leaders in in sort of sports broadcasting in his role in Eurosport beforehand and very exciting time for them building up to Paris and what, what they can do. But really feels like someone who's got these fingers on the pulse of of what the challenges and opportunities in, in this marketplace. So great that we could um, uh, celebrate them and what they what they brought to the industry because they, they have brought a lot of blood, sweat and tears, so to speak, um, to, to it and really helped us um, move, move things forward. So Nick, I'll, I'll kind of let you pick and choose what you, if, if you, there's anything in particular that you want to close on, you know, for me, the last thing I would sort of highlight just to give you a bit of time to, to wrap your, your thoughts around, you know, I would say the first year I was at Sports Pro Media, there's a lot of talk about social media and uh, subscription platforms. My second year was the, the year just following or in the midst of COVID. So there's a lot of conversation around how do we broadcast under these situations from a logistics perspective? How do we engage with fans that now don't have the experience, you know, all the watch parties, all the pumping in fake crowd noise. Then the year after that, very heavy web three. There wasn't a presentation that didn't include something about NFTs this year. Seemingly the magic word was all around AI. And like I said, there, there were different versions of that. Whether that was generative AI, um, whether that, that was using AI as a tool, like I said, using translations um, for different languages for localization this year, AI was a big topic. And it seemed to come up in, in lots of different conversations about, you know, how that's going to help us as a business, how it's going to help us create content. Um, but I would say unlike web three, it does seem like, because it's more of a B2B application as opposed to a B2C application, that that con that will be a conversation that will probably be had in 2024 Madrid, unlike you know Web3, which seemingly took a step back this year. Well, I do, I do think Web3 is going to rear its head a little bit now. I think it's had a little bit of time to calm down, and I think it's, it's going to come, come back. I think it's just going to be more of an enabler of tech rather than be has to be web three for it to be good and shiny it just has to solve problems right it has to just do the job whether it's web three web two it doesn't really matter but i think you're going to see more and more of it in 12 months on whether it impacts the digital media space i'm not too sure yet the only thing i can think with web three related stuff can still play a role is around identity um and perhaps around digital collectibles again but i'd like to see more of what it can bring to the table other than those areas which still are things that can be offered now with or without uh, Web3. Have you got something for me, Chris? I, I do, because first, I am bullish on Web3. Like, I still think, uh, to your point, it's going to come back. But the thing I am looking forward to, I think we're going to talk about it in Madrid 2024, although it probably won't be until, like, Madrid 2028 that it becomes, like, a real topic. So, yeah, we're going real bold and out there in the future with our predictions. I'm curious to see what happens with the Apple Vision Pro. Um, I know Facebook has had their um, Oculus goggles, but it just feels different that Apple is going to be releasing this. And like I said, I think we're going to be talking about those immersive experiences, which I think will... Maybe it's not directly Web3, but you're starting to get into more of that metaverse type of feel, which kind of sometimes pulls itself into the Web3 discussion. I think with Apple doing that, People will be talking about it next year. They won't have figured it out or how it actually applies to sports. But I do think, to your point, like I think we probably will hear a little bit more Web3 next year. And I think what Apple's doing with the release of that in early 2024 could potentially be one of the catalysts for that. Well, I think, yeah, I, I, was, I wouldn't disagree with much of that. Although I'm still yet to see an example. And we've been waiting for 20 years of what yeah. VR can bring to the table that is going to be really mainstream and i still wait to see if that, that can play out um i think next year we're going to be looking towards how platforms like youtube and alike have enabled a new audience base and a revenue stream i think that's the the pressure of trying to do broadcast deals and build subscription products i think has been now demystified and i think you're going to see more and more teams leagues sports properties, put more time into big platforms like that, get mass reach and then sell other opportunities and monetize other ways. I think it's now going to be more more use cases of it. And so we'll be talking about more and more of those. You won't just have a Kings League, you might have half a dozen more examples of that. I'm not going to say there's going to be a complete shift in 12 months time, but you're going to see more and more examples of people that have made that work for themselves. Uh, and you know, e-commerce and those things, I think will just be more mature. You'll see more activity. Uh, and I'm, hopefully you'll see a lot more opportunity than we have in the in before where we're still trying to work out our way through things 
So have I given you enough time to, to come up with anything, Nick? Or is that, is, that, is that how you want to wrap things up, talking about our predictions for 2024? Well, actually, I, while I was on this and you were giving your little description, I did find the extra stuff on the Premier League because I think everyone would be interested in that there because it's used a bit of a litmus test. So it looks like uh, that there was five packages up for grabs and Sky took four of them and Premier League and uh, TNT took the final one. So there's no DAZN in there. There's no Apple. There's no Amazon. There is no one else by the looks of it. Um, so that is quite a, a big deal to see that it's been reduced to – so Sky Sports have been awarded packages B, C, D, and E, and I believe TNT secured A. That would mean that um, Amazon's out of the picture. And we only had them talking last week about those rights there as well. And DAZN also talking about how they wanted a piece of the pie. Uh, the rights seem to have gone up net across the board about four percent um cycle to cycle not a huge amount but it's gone up marginal but there's a lot more games available so interesting interesting to see i wasn't sure if sky would take more rides because i thought well they got those efl rights tied up in the uk why would they need to invest as much but clearly they've seen an opportunity to take even grosser market share and now there is there's you have to have a sky sports subscription if you want to watch football, that's basically that's basically it in the UK. Uh, if you don't uh, don't like football, then you don't need Sky. But otherwise, you are locked and loaded. You're going to have to subscribe to Sky for the next four years. So, yeah, big win for Sky in on paper if they can make those uh, those uh, commercials work. But um, surprising to see Amazon step away uh, and indeed DAZN not not get a piece of that. Yeah, well, sounds like that's some great juicy content for some future podcasts. <laughs> absolutely we'll have to dig, dig through that one a little bit more and see why the others uh, didn't come to the come to the table obviously again monetization issue continues to be a challenge um, or justification i suppose uh, amazon not getting them is a huge surprise for me out of everything i wasn't sure the zone would pull the trigger base especially since shy's comments last week but for them to be stepping away i think that's actually a blow uh, that they, the premier league couldn't get enough value out of them just to keep a third uh, third, in, uh, third player uh, in the mix there. So, but good, you know, good for sports fans, good for football fans. That means there's less fragmentation, right? So a big win for, for UK uh, EPL uh, watchers and obviously less content is behind a paywall. So that's, uh, uh, sorry, it's not, not behind a paywall. Less content is blacked out because they've moved more games out of the 3 p.m. slot. So that's also a win for the next cycle. Yeah, well, everyone... It was good to meet some of you in Madrid. I know some of you came up and uh, chatted to me. Uh, I can tell you our next event will be in March of 2024, this time in New York. So uh, for those of you that maybe Madrid was uh, a bit too far to come, New York's going to be a little bit closer to you. Um, would absolutely love to see you there. So until next time, Nick. It's until next time. Thanks very much, everyone, for listening. And um, look forward to talking to you all in, the, in due course from my sunny Jamaican home. Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of Streamtime. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to. As a growing podcast, we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review. Ultimately, we want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the SportsPro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime Podcast. Mm-hmm.